Second Chronicles chapter 33. The, the book of Chronicles chronicles uh, the life of the kings in um, Israel. And so if you read through um, Chronicles, it's just sort of one king and then the next king and the next king. And we're on a particularly important passage this morning in Second Chronicles that has to do with the reign of Manasseh, who is the king of Judah. Judah and Israel were split into two, and Judah was the southern kingdom and the last of the two kingdoms to fall. And I want to read for us uh, chapter 33, verses 1 through 16. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals and made Asherahs and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his own sons as an offering. And he used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with the medians, mediums and with wizards. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And he carved an image of an idol that he had made and set in the house of God, of which God said to David and Solomon, his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from this land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, and all the laws and the statutes and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God. And humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And he prayed. And God was moved by his prayer. And heard his plea. And brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon. And then the valley. And for the entrance to the fish gate. And carried it around Ophel. And raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah, and he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word together. This is Tim Pasma, my friend. He is the father of Calvin Pasma, who's a member here at Christ Community Church. And 
Uh, Calvin has been here for a number of years, and his parents, Becca and Tim, have come down and visited and found out that he's a preacher. And I was like, oh, great. So we have something in common. We have all these conversations. And uh, last year, he asked me to come up and speak at a Bible conference that he had. And was it last? Was it last it March? Was March. Okay, so March, yeah. I flew up to Ohio to a little place I'd never heard of, Larue, Ohio, to Larue Baptist Church, and really had a wonderful experience. One of the funny things was was um, it was March, and it snowed that Saturday night, maybe a couple of inches. And um, I, we came to church, and I said, you know, if it snowed a couple of inches in Wilmington, we would not be having church. And they were just horrified of that. I would even say that. Um, but it was really a great time. And the folks there were just so, so genuine. And I've really gotten to know the, the Pasma family, which is quite a, a thing all by itself. But um, I'm grateful that he's here. Uh, he's a man who has been faithful to a church in Ohio that you, you'll, you won't hear anything about until glory. But he travels the world and helps people in counseling. But he comes back for 28 years to just faithfully live out the gospel in, in Ohio. So I'm very grateful that you're here. I'm very grateful that you're going to help us understand Second Chronicles. Let me pray for you. Right. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this man and his faithfulness, for the gifts that you've given him, especially in terms of counseling, helping people understand the Bible and how that intersects his life. Or their lives. And I pray particularly for his church as they meet now, as they minister to the people in LaRue and other surrounding towns, that you would uh, have your grace fall there as we ask for it here on his message to us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, Paul. It's a real privilege to be here and minister to you. Although I can tell you right now that. Um, there's one person out there that's extraordinarily disappointed that I'm preaching. My wife said to me, when I said, Pastor Paul asked if I'd preach, she goes, oh, really? <laughs> Half the reason why we go see Calvin is to go hear Paul preach. <laughs> so, oh my, it is a delight to be here. I know none of you have ever heard of LaRue and the temptation, of course, right now is to tell a good story about Calvin, but I, I won't do that. Um, we're thankful to the Lord for this church um, and for its ministry in our son's life. And we're thankful for you folks and the fact that you um, love the gospel and are here to, um, to serve others for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we want to look at Manasseh this morning in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. So open your Bibles there as we refer to the text and, and see what the Lord has for us there. Have you ever thrown up your hands in despair? Have you ever thrown up your hands in despair and say to yourself, there is no hope for him? He's too far gone. Not only is he wicked, but he is so stubborn that there is no way that he's ever going to repent. And maybe you said that about your son or your daughter. Maybe about someone you work with who for several times you shared the gospel and they just keep seem to be hard to get harder and harder and harder. Quite possibly you viewed the situation that you've lived with and now tired and despairing. You say those words. Uh, maybe someone has come to you for help. And as you listen to the mess he's in because of his sin, you say to yourself, 
what, what could I possibly say? There's no hope for him. It's just impossible. Maybe, maybe in fact you said that about yourself. And I don't know this congregation. I don't know who's visiting. And I don't even know who the people in this congregation are. And you may be here this morning saying to yourself, there's no hope for me. And you're just going through the, the religious game. You're just here because you're supposed to be at church. But you honestly, um, you honestly are saying to yourself, you know, the things that I've done are so wicked and so awful that I'm too far gone. Or maybe you're just here, you're here week after week, but you just say to yourself, ah, I keep wrestling with this sin, there's just no hope for me, I'm too far gone. Well, the book of Chronicles is written to a people who are losing hope. Now, Chronicles was written to the people of Israel after they had returned from, the, from their captivity in Babylon. This is different than First and Second Kings because this is written to tell the people that there's hope. First and Second Kings, which is another story of all the kings, was written as they went off to captivity to say, this is the reason why we're going to captivity. But First and Second Chronicles were written after they had returned, when they were uh, just a, another um, just a, another province in the great Persian Empire. They had no king; their temple was small, and it was wasn't much to it, and 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 they were losing hope. They were losing hope, and so this was written to people who needed needed hope. But before we start thinking about First and Second Chronicles as books about long ago and far away, we have to remember what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, when he talked about all those things that were written in the past were written for those, were written for us upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. And so First and Second Chronicles isn't about a people long ago and far away. It's about us. It's addressed to you. Because it's all summed up in the person of Jesus, and that's where our allegiance is, and all of this points to him. And so there's always hope for us. This is written to a people who need hope. And I'm looking at you and I'm thinking, I've been around the ministry enough to know, I'll bet you need hope. You think you do? I think you do. Well, let's look at what God has to tell us through this man called Manasseh. The history of Manasseh is the record of a king who gave himself over to every kind of, of evil, who led his people to follow in those same wicked and shameful paths. As you read the story of Manasseh, the question arises, what is God going to do with this guy? What's he going to do with this guy? And the second question is, is there any hope for Manasseh and his people? Well, let's look at the story. I'll indulge me as we read through the text again and, and look at what it has to say to us. Manasseh, was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced sorcery, divination, and witchcraft, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He took the carved uh, images he had made and put it in God's temple. 
of which God had said to David and to his son Solomon, in this temple in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites leave the land I assigned to your forefathers. If only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them concerning all the laws, decrees, and ordinances given through, given through Moses. But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. So the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. How far must you go before you have no hope? How far must you go before you have no hope? Look at Manasseh. He took wickedness to new and unprecedented depths of depravity. He became degraded in his sin by practicing and leading the people into these horrific religious rites. He encouraged the people to abandon the temple and worship other gods in the high places. They would go to high places and and the people in those days would, would pick out high places to build altars and worship these other gods. And so he encouraged his people to worship other gods in these high places. He worshiped and encouraged, um, uh, he, he led them astray and encouraged them to worship the Baals and the Asherahs. Now, if you don't know anything about Baal, as a kid, right, you go through science school, you keep hearing about Baal, but you can't tell kids what Baal is about or Asherah. Baal is a fertility god. Asherah is his consort. And in the fertility cults of the ancient Middle East, if you wanted fertile land, if you wanted a fertile wife who would produce children, you went to the Baal shrine and there had sexual relations with um, the temple prostitutes that were there. It was part of worship. And so you have this king encouraging people into the sexual immorality um, very public, very sensual, very degrading, and, and, and so forth. He was encouraging them to do that. Not only that, but he practiced the violent and cruel and heartless religious rites of Moloch. When it says he burned his sons, we don't even, what, what they would do is, for Moloch, they would build these idols that would have these hands outstretched like this, and they would heat those hands. They were like pans. And they would heat those hands into incredible temperatures and then put babies in them. That is the kind of worship. He burned his own sons in that way. That was the, that was the kind of worship he led his people. And this worship was so degrading that for that very reason, God had exterminated and told his people, you must exterminate the Canaanites because that, that was the kind of worship they had. And Here's Manasseh bringing them to even lower depths than the original inhabitants, according to our text. He became darkened in his sin. He practiced and led the people in the worship of the stars. And if you read Romans 1, what does it say? That when you you worship creation rather than creator, what happens? You become futile and darkened in your understanding. And so again, he becomes darkened and foolish in his understanding and thus turns to divination, the practice of divination. Priests would divine the will of the gods by slaughtering animals, cutting them apart and laying out their intestines and reading the intestines, the will of the God. And this is what, this is what he resorted to. He sought the, the guidance of psychics and, and mediums and witches. And he was guilty of sorcery. Manasseh essentially said, the word of Jehovah is not sufficient to give me counsel. I will seek the counsel of other gods by other means. 
He became defiant in his sin. Absolutely defiant in his sin. He defied God by encouraging worship in the high places. By keeping the people from coming to the one place where God had said he would place his name. If you read the Old Testament, as they're coming into the land, God is always saying to them, I'm going to choose one place. I'm going to put my name there. And that is where my people will worship. And David, um, you remember, as you read the history of the Old Testament, the, the, the tabernacles at Shiloh, it's at these different places. Finally, David brings it to Jerusalem. And under Solomon, this temple is constructed where God places his name, the meeting place between God and man at this place in Jerusalem. And he defies God at this point. He defies God by encouraging people to worship other places and other gods. And not only that, but he places the altars for the stars in the temple courtyards. And he even carves the image of a fertility goddess and puts it in the very temple of God. Now, he knew the symbolism of that act. If you read the story of Manasseh, his father was Hezekiah, who is, who is probably the greatest king, second only to David in his greatness, and even greater than David in his piety. Manasseh knew what he was doing. It's like a kid saying, I'm done with the religion of my parents. That's just, ah, I hate it. And he defies God by putting this image of this fertility goddess in the very temple of the one God, as well as these altars to the starry hosts. It's as if he put the idols right under God's nose in defiance of all that God had said. And then in verse 10, it says they wouldn't, Heed the warnings of God. No doubt the prophets had come and warned him and the people and they would not listen. Manasseh became destructive in his sin. He broke down the barriers of national righteousness that restrained evil in society. My ancestors come from the Netherlands. My grandpa came from the Netherlands. You know anything about the Netherlands? You know that most of that country is below sea level. And the Dutch have, have reclaimed land from the sea. They're this people that just, the, the, their country keeps growing because they keep pushing the sea further back. And then the sea is held back by a series of dikes and, and canals and pumping stations and all that. If you, if you wipe out the dikes, you'd lose one-third of the nation of the Netherlands. The, the ocean would just sweep in. And Manasseh is like this guy who destroys the dikes. Everything, this iniquity just sweeps over the nation. We're seeing something like that in our culture today. You know, even though, even though right now, with all homos- these homosexual marriages and the, and the iniquity that we're seeing in our country, it's revealing where the hearts of people have always been. It shouldn't surprise us, really, should it? Given our theology, I know your theology is like ours, depraved people. It shouldn't surprise us these things are happening, but it's, it's as if the gates have been opened, right? And that's what Manasseh did. He opened the gates to this incredible iniquity. It's as if he tears down all the restraining systems. All his actions demonstrated a contempt for God and all his commandments. This was not a quiet rebellion, but a public insult hurled into the face of the Most High. Now, Some of you may be here saying, I'm glad I haven't sunk that far into depravity. Let me ask you, you may not murder babies, but maybe you hate the fact that your children keep you from doing the things you always wanted to do. You know, we had six children. 
my wife has often said to me, Tim, you know, we would have done differently if we hadn't had six children. And that's true. But how many of us resent that? How many of us resent the fact that our children keep us from our dreams, right? You may not practice sexual religion, but, you know, what did you view this week on your computer? And what was on your mind concerning some of the women at work? And what other things are going on in your mind? You may not be going to psychics for guidance, but how many of your decisions have been made with the word of God really, really in place? Have been, how many of your decisions have been consciously informed by what God has revealed in his word? You may not be involved in vital and brutal acts, but have you harbored hate in your heart for someone who crossed you? Maybe someone even here today. And you know what? As our text says, the Lord is provoked to anger at such contempt, whether in action or in our hearts. We can't forget this fact that God is holy. He is provoked to anger with the wickedness that resides in us. Because he is holy. He cannot overlook anything. Oftentimes when I'm sharing gospel with someone, I said, you know that God can't overlook any sin? If God would overlook your sin of stealing a cookie from the cookie jar, he would cease to be God. Because God is righteous. Not God is righteous. That's his character. For him to overlook one sin would be to destroy his character. God cannot. It is impossible for God to overlook any sin. It provokes him to anger. Has anybody ever spit you in... Spit you in the face. Has that ever happened to you? It's a, it just, right away you just, when we sin, we spit in God's face. And, and, and when, then we look at the nature of sin, it's a horrible thing. God is angry at sin. He's provoked. So the question is, did Manasseh go too far? Have, have we all gone too far? Have any of us gone too far? Is all hope lost? I don't know. Let's keep reading. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, The Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Wow. You can have hope because of God's mercy. You can have hope because of God's mercy. Observe the mercy of God to Manasseh. God displayed his mercy, first of all, by warning him and his people. He did it through prophets, no doubt. When it says that God spoke to him, he's probably speaking of the prophets here. When God spoke to him, they paid no attention. God was merciful in warning him, in warning him and calling for repentance. Even though the Lord is provoked to anger, he takes pity. This is something that just fascinates me. All right. We provoke the Lord to anger 
And, and we're these defiant, degraded, destructive kind of people. And God takes pity on us. That just amazes me. This has been, this has been driven home to me in, in our church's life this last year. We've been involved. The, the Lord has basically kicked open the doors for us to deal with the heroin addict community um, around us. And it's huge. It's huge what's going on in our part of the country. And we had a girl who lived with us for a while, and it just didn't work out. I mean, um, the help we were giving her wasn't helping her at all. But the thing that our family had to learn with this girl, she was deceptive. She would use us. She would get us to do things for her. She would tell us one thing and do another. And, you know, we're new at this. We're, you know, and then, then we find out these things. What do you think your what do you think your, your your typical reaction is when someone lies to you, uses your vehicle to do something, and then lies to you about it, and then you find out about it? What do you think a typical reaction is? It's like, oh, that just makes me mad. God looks at rebels and what? Has pity. This was really a wake up call for me. <laughs> do I feel pity for her? Or do I just get angry? God gets angry and he, he, he with, in mercy, he takes pity. So he takes pity. He takes pity on Manasseh and these people and he sends them warnings. This is a sign of his mercy. When he says, don't do that anymore, you'll, you'll end up destroyed. That's his mercy. That's not God being a, you know, flying off the handle. It's God being merciful. And in his mercy, he's provoked to anger, and yet he takes pity and he sends warnings and the offer to relent from sending judgment and destruction. Just repent. Just humble yourself. That's all you need to do. That's his mercy. You know what else? Look at verse verse 11. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. That's God's mercy. God displays his mercy in Manasseh's misery. What a sorry spectacle, right? This king dragged away by the troops of another nation with a hook in his nose and his bronze shackles around his feet and his hands. What humiliation for him what humiliation for his nation what humiliation for his family this pitiful man a descendant of the mighty david and the wise solomon dragged away picture in your mind your husband or your dad arrested walking out of the house before all the neighbors in an orange jumpsuit and in handcuffs right how demeaning yet this is god's mercy god at times hands men over to their sin and the consequences of that sin so that they will listen. You see, this is God's mercy. Those consequences sometimes become the instruments of God's mercy. I remember Mike. I remember Mike. Now, LaRue, you've never heard of it, right? Unless Calvin's referred to it. LaRue's a town of about, well, since the flood two years ago, it's now only a town of 750. 
750 people. So we all know one another pretty much. And um, I'm the senior clergyman. I've been there 28 years. I've outlasted anybody in the other churches. So you get to know everybody. I remember Mike coming to me. Mike, I knew Mike. He knew me. We came to me as... His wife had decided she didn't want anything more to do with him, got involved with someone else. He was talking suicide. He came to talk to me about it. I just, he's a truck driver. Uh, I just, there are times where I'm driving, I'm just going to say, if I just take this truck into that abutment, I'll just end it all. I'll be done with this misery, right? He'd gotten to the point where he despaired of life. What do you tell someone like that? You know what I told him? I'll never forget it. Let's look at Romans 3, that passage, 10 through 12. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seek God. And you get down to the, to the bottom of that description. It says, ruin and misery mark their ways. I said, Mike, you know what? We could give you all kinds of techniques about how to talk and how to communicate and how to do all these things, but it's just like taping fruit on a tree. It's not going to do any good. The problem is right here in the roots. You know what it is? I remember writing, sin. Salinated you from God. That has to be taken care of. There's no guarantee you'll get your wife back. But this is the problem. Ruin and misery are marking your ways. Mike, soon after that, was converted. But it took God bringing him to that point before he would listen. C.S. Lewis once said, pain is God's megaphone to speak to a deaf world. Sometimes it takes the worst circumstances before we become willing to listen to God. Ah, but look at verses 12 and 13. God displays his mercy in hearing Manasseh and converting him. Isn't that great? You know, the book of, if you read the book of 2 Kings, you don't read this part. It doesn't tell you that part. The chronicler tells you that part. Why? Because he's got a different purpose. He wants to give you hope. He's going to say the worst king there ever was in Israel's history, is converted. Remember, the God who cannot tolerate sin cannot turn away from a broken sinner. The God who cannot tolerate sin will never turn away from a broken sinner. Even more breathtaking than Manasseh's sin is his repentance after leading his nation astray, after doing all the horrible, wicked things that he did, he proclaims the Lord is God and depends on his mercy. And then the amazing thing is God shows him mercy. Now, God bestowed his mercy because of his promise. Turn back in Second Chronicles for a moment. A key text in this book is chapter 6 and chapter 7. Chapter 6 is the dedication of this temple. And the dedicatory prayer that Solomon prays is very instructive for us. Now, obviously, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's 42 verses long. But I want you to to notice some of the things that Solomon says in this prayer. For example, drop to 2 Chronicles 6, verse 18. But will God really dwell on earth with men? 
The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. O Lord, my God, hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence. May your eyes be open toward this temple day and night, this place of which you said you would put your name there. May you hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Now, go down. Verse 24. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back and confess your name, praying and making supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land you gave to them and their fathers. Verse 36. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to a land far away or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong and acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their captivity where they were taken, and pray toward the land you gave their fathers, toward the city you've chosen, and toward the temple I have built for your name. Then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their pleas, and uphold their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. And then drop down to chapter 7. Probably one of, the, one of those most misused passages in the Bible, Second Chronicles 7 Verse 12, the Lord appeared to him at night to Solomon and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God bestowed his mercy because he is merciful and he promised his people mercy. Manasseh would never have repented. He never would have humbled himself if it were not for the promise of God. Listen, listen carefully. The law of God with which threatens punishment for sin would never have brought Manasseh to repentance. Only the promise of mercy will move a sinner to repentance. The law can only bring conviction, but it's only the hope, it's only hope that will ever move a sinner to repentance. Never forget that. The law has its place. It brings conviction, but if the law is the only thing you have, you will despair. The only thing that moves us to repentance is the promise of God. And God had promised forgiveness and mercy if they would look to the temple and pray and humble themselves, then they would be forgiven. Now, I must say this because I believe with all my heart this is about Jesus. And the reason why I say it's about Jesus is Jesus himself, you remember in Luke chapter 24, he's walking with the two disciples. And he opens up, I wish I were there. 
It'd make preaching so much easier. He opened up the Old Testament and showed them how the whole thing was about him. The whole Old Testament was about Jesus. This is about Jesus. Why? How can we say that? The temple. The temple pictures Jesus. It's pointing toward Jesus. Why? The temple is the meeting place between God and man. And the Apostle John writes to us in John chapter 1 that Jesus, what? Tabernacled among us. Right? The meeting place between God and man is no longer a temple. It is the person of Jesus. And the temple was the place of atonement. And Jesus is that atonement. You see? And so all of this points to Jesus. Manasseh's story is a, is a prelude, is a picture driving us to Christ. Saying, if you want hope, then go to the place. Pray to the place. The meeting place between God and man. The place of atonement, and that is Jesus. God makes the promise of mercy for degraded, depraved, defiant sinners explicit in Jesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, and I'm, listen, this is well-worn in my Bible when it comes to counseling. There are people who sit before you and they say, uh, there's no hope for me. There's no hope for me. And I look at the Apostle Paul's word in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, for what reason? For the worst of sinners. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. There's hope. In the mercy of God. And God loves. God loves to take his son and put him up there and say, look. You know, it's not about look how rotten of a sinner I am. And look how great God was. It's like, I'm a rotten sinner. Look how great Jesus is. Yeah, right. Look how great Jesus is. He saved me so he would look good. I don't know about you, but that works for me. Jesus, I want you to look good. I want you to look good. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your mercy. He saved you so that he could display Jesus and his mercy. I say to you, it doesn't matter what you've done, how wicked you've been. And listen, every one of us here can say with the Apostle Paul, I am the worst of sinners. Oh, pastor, if you only knew it went in my head, if you only knew the resentments I've had, and I'm struggling right now with this, you need to hear the gospel. God's merciful. Takes pity on you. And he will not condemn you in Jesus. The last thing we see in Manasseh's life is, is simply this. You can have hope. You can have hope because God's mercy brings a better life. 
God's mercy brings a better life. Verse 14. Afterward, he rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David west of the Gihon Spring in the valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate and encircling the hill of Ophel. He also made it much higher. He stationed military commanders in all the fortified cities in Judah. He got rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of the of the Lord, as well as all the altars he'd built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem, and he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it and told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. The people, however, continued to sacrifice at the high places, but only to the Lord, only to Jehovah, their God. The other events of Manasseh's reign, including his prayer to his God and the words, the seer spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, are written in the annals of the kings of Israel. His prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty, as well as all his sins and unfaithfulness, and the sites where he built high places and set up Asherah poles and idols before he humbled himself, all are written in the records of the seers. Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in his palace, and Ammon, his son, succeeded him as king. You can have hope because God's mercy brings a better life. Look again at Manasseh. God restored the land. He talks about all that building, right? Why is that recorded there? Because God had made a promise. If my people called by my name will humble themselves, what? I will forgive them and restore their land. And so he gives him grace and he he starts restoring these places. God restores a repentant sinner in verse 13, right? When he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. He, he restores a repentant sinner. God changes those who've repented. If you look at it, you see the evidence of a changed life, of a changed heart. Manasseh was willing to right the wrongs that he had done. He took out all those idols. He discouraged the people. He was not entirely successful. The people still worshipped in the high places, although they worshipped God. He wasn't entirely successful in that. However, we prove our repentance not by our success in reversing things, but in our willingness to make them right. You know, I think he shows a willingness to help others. Because what does he do? He gives over to the recorders, to the official people, his prayer, right? Write this prayer down. This is the prayer I prayed. Write it down so others can read it. Even his own sins, write those downs. Although we don't have those records, it shows a willingness to teach the next generation about me. Listen, this is the way I was. Look how great God was to me. God's mercy brings to you a new life, life as it should be. Now, for us who have been joined to Christ in the new covenant, the better life does not mean restoring everything the way it was before. It doesn't mean that. But he does promise something better than what you had before. Here's one of the most amazing verses to me. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes this, Therefore, since through God's mercy... We have this ministry. We do not lose heart. You say, what's so great about that? I just think about that. Since through God's mercy, God had pity on me. He saved me and he gave me this ministry. Therefore, I'm not going to lose heart. God in his mercy gave him this ministry. Five times 
lashed. The 40 lashes minus one. Five times, he says, I got that. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. I was once stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day I was on the open sea. I'm constantly on the move. I'm in danger from false brothers, from Gentiles, from rivers, from bandits. And on top of all that, I'm a pastor, he says. I have the burden of the church that occupies me. I look at that verse and I say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like mercy to me, right? I could have had a comfortable life as a well-known Pharisee with a great reputation, but instead God was merciful to me and he gave me this ministry where I'm beaten and shipwrecked. But it's a better life than what he had before, isn't it? Here's an abusive man, let's say, who's lost his family because of his sin. But God has brought him to repentance. God has shown him mercy. I can say to him, even though he's lost everything, he's lost his family. God has something better for you. Does that mean his family be restored to him? No, I don't say that. I don't say that. But it does mean that he'll have a better life because now he'll have a life of peace. He'll have a life of continuing, growing freedom from his anger and his selfishness. And the ability to know now, instead of being king of the hill, the ability to know the joy and the satisfaction of serving others. It also means that he'll have a whole new family who'll love him. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and in the age to come eternal life. He's got a whole new family, a family that will love him, care for him. It also means that someday he'll receive an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade in eternal glory that far outweighs the suffering of today. He's got a better life. Jesus is not a liar when he says, the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy, but I have come that they may have life to the full. You can have hope because your life is better. You see, not only your sin but your repentance will have consequences. Wonderful, marvelous consequences. Dear friends, do you think you're in a position that's hopeless? You're not. You are not beyond hope. Because God is merciful. And God has displayed that mercy for all to see in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Manasseh stands as a testament to the richness of God's mercy. You cannot exhaust the depths of that mercy. There is hope for any who would look to Christ, for it is Jesus who came to save sinners. Always remember this. The God who cannot tolerate sin will never turn away 
from a broken sinner. Oh, God. Your glory is so marvelously displayed in the mercy that you show us in Jesus. Lord God, I don't know who is here. You've brought me here and this message for this day for a particular purpose. There are those here who need to hear of your mercy and the hope that is in that mercy. Father, frankly, we all need to hear it because every one of us gets to the place of despair. Father, I pray for anyone here who thinks that what they have done or what they have thought or what they have said is beyond any kind of forgiveness. I pray that they will see the mercy of God in Christ today. Lord God, be at work in our hearts. Give us hope in your mercy, we pray. In Jesus' name.